Good evening, everyone. Broadcasting live, July, July 3rd, 2016, as usual. So today's quote, today's quote is about uh, wood, woody, Woody means uh, growth or progress and expansion, increase. Sorry, not Woody. Wadhi. Wadhi. Wadha means to get, to grow, to, to grow, to increase. So we're talking about the Arya Wadhi. Arya means noble, so the noble uh, betterment, noble growth, I guess. It just sounds weird because we use the word growth to mean something else, but to grow, to to progress spiritually, spiritual growth. And curiously, it's directed towards a woman. Now, I'm not sure what that's all about. It doesn't use the word woman, but it uses the feminine forms of the word savika. Savika means means a female disciple. So you'd think these might be a little gender stereotyped, but I don't see that. Um, uses the word upasika as well. So it is a, it is directed towards women. Uh, so maybe he was talking to a bunch of women. Could have been, he uses the word bikave, which is masculine. So he's talking to, but that doesn't really mean anything. No, I suppose it does. It'd be a stretch to say he was talking to women here. Probably talking to the monks, talking about women, which is, uh, oh yeah, oh, because this is the Matugama Samhita, which is a discourse about about mothers, about house mothers, which means house household women, which of course is, I guess, a favorite subject of monks, probably not. There are things to be said. How to relate? How how male celibate monks, heterosexual celibate males, should relate to the women that they have to come in contact with? Because for some time there was only men. There was only male monks. At any rate, as I said, I don't think this is terribly gender-specific. These five things, uh, Sadha, Sila, Sutta, Chaga, Panya. And they're pretty standard. So we can treat this just as five, uh, five dhammas that we should all cultivate. If we cultivate these, it leads to our spiritual well-being, our spiritual growth increase in all things spiritual.
allow us to grasp the grasp the essence sarada saradaya saradaya varadaya to grasp the essence to grasp the highest uh, that which is special excellent so sadha means we try to have confidence and we cultivate confidence not only in ourselves but in the practice not only in the practice I suppose but also in the Buddha but mainly in the practice if you want to streamline it the most important confidence you have is in the path that you're following and of course it helps to think that the Buddha knew what he was teaching but you don't have to quite go that you don't have to necessarily go that uh, abstract you can take the practice for what it is as long as you are clear about the benefits of it and are focused on the goodness of it this is why I tell people not to often tell students not to worry about success or progress am I doing better than I was yesterday am I, is this meditation helping me as well don't look at it in those terms, uh, look at it as it happens, when you're meditating, when you have a clear mind, look at the quality of that mind and remind yourself of how pure the mind is when you're objective and how it solves the situation. It resolves the, the problems that arise, the, the challenges that come the conflicts that arise in the mind it resolves them and see how it does that and then you don't have to worry about what the results are going to be because clearly that's a, a positive change in your life and building up that habit is of course going to bring good things there's no question that it might bring bad things and so you just be patient let the good things come rather than checking and seeing have they come yet have they come yet and when they haven't come giving rise to irrational doubt. Like it's irrational because if you look at what you're doing, you're doing something positive. If you want real confidence, focus on what you're doing. Are you doing something positive? And don't worry about the outcome. You should be very confident if you're doing something positive, doing something that's purely good for you and good for others. Sila, we need to have ethics. And we can't be. If we want to. If we want to reach the essence, if we want to get to the core of the truth of the nature of reality. You need some kind of ethical guidelines to keep you sober, to keep you sane, to keep your mind uh, settled and balanced, so that you're not overcome by negative emotions of vengeance and fear and mistrust, distrust. So we sila, that we shouldn't kill, steal, lie, cheat, take drugs or alcohol, we shouldn't gamble, we shouldn't engage in unethical practices. 
and ethical business practices, etc. It will help our minds focus if we avoid these things. We feel more confident in ourselves. Number three, sutta we have to we have to learn. Sutta means listening, that which is heard. One should be full of that which is heard. So knowledge. Because back then they would it would all be past word of uh, past word of mouth. Teachings would be passed on from teacher to disciple. And so you have to listen. You have to listen carefully. Doesn't mean just sitting down and keeping your ears open. It means inclining your, your ear in the sense of being interested and focusing your attention. So not like listening me, to me and checking Facebook or playing whatever it is people play. Playing Farmville, isn't that the thing? No, you should be focused. They talk about, and then not only should you be focused, but you should keep it in mind what you've learned. The Buddha talked about someone who carries the Dhamma on their lap. And it means like if a person carries something like their, their bowl of soup on their lap, and if they forget about it and they stand up, it flies all over the place, spills all over. The person who carries the Dhamma on their lap is someone who, when they're sitting listening, they, they keep it in mind. <clears throat> but as soon as they get up, they forget about it. So they don't take it into their lives. They don't take it seriously. It doesn't become a part of who they are. So sutta doesn't just mean listening. It means the whole, uh, the whole spectrum of attention and retention of knowledge and wisdom. Number four is jaga. Jaga is, this is a specific, fairly specific layperson quality. So it's not just for women, it's for men as well, but jaga means generosity because, I mean, it, it, it's not that monks aren't generous and don't be generous, but it's um, more visibly and obviously a quality of lay people because they support the, the monks, you know, they keep them alive with food and the monks need uh, need robes or medicine they provide that um, but I guess more importantly they have material wealth so to be generous with that not just with other Buddhists but with uh, poor people, with their family, with relatives, even with strangers, you know, hospitality to people who come to visit. Many cultures, when you enter their house, they immediately offer you something, food or drink, find something to share with you. you know, at the very least, asking what they need. Is there anything I can, I can get for you? Someone comes into your house to be generous, to be giving. Monks can do it as well, we all can. But this is a great 
support for our religious practice because again it builds confidence it builds happiness you know in the sense of not just a happy feeling but feeling good about yourself in this in a sense of giving energy not uh, depressing you making it hard for you to making you uninterested un uh, unresolute not able to pull yourself together and move forward and number five wisdom we want to find the truth we need wisdom banya banya means to nya means knowledge ba means thoroughly thorough or complete perfect so real knowledge wisdom banya means wisdom wisdom is different from learning you know, true wisdom comes from seeing doesn't come from uh, speculating or extrapolating or rationalizing true wisdom comes from just seeing clearing up clearing your mind so perfectly that you can see everything calm your mind down through the meditation by not not letting things distract you or, or not reacting to things and eventually seeing things as they are seeing that the things that we cling to are not worth clinging to seeing the difference between wholesome mind states and unwholesome mind states seeing that nothing is worth clinging to and finally seeing Nibbana so these five things are that which leads to growth this is what we're all concerned with here, right? we want progress, we want to better ourselves that's why we practice meditation. We're not perfect. We are people who have problems, who react, who have reactions, no, who have problems inside, who ourselves are not yet satisfactory. We're not satisfied with our own state. Okay, so that's the Dhamma for tonight. Do you have any questions? There was a question from earlier. Someone asking, do you have a breathing technique that helps you breathe better? Well, no. It's not about better. Better is a judgment. So again, we're trying not to judge, trying not to react. We're not concerned about breathing better. We're concerned about how we react to the way we breathe naturally, whether that be good or bad. If it's really causing you problems, then you know sometimes you can address it, but mostly you just address your your reactions to it. You're mindful of it. If it feels not nice, or it feels strange. You say feeling, feeling. But if you dislike it or you're frustrated by it, or so on, you say disliking, disliking. How much of the Buddha's teaching is confirmed as authentic and not invented? Well, it was all invented. The Buddha invented it. 
but if you mean invented by someone other than the Buddha, well, it doesn't really matter. What matters is whether it works, right? If you uh, practice it and you see that it's got holes in it, then you can doubt as to whether a Buddha taught it. If you practice it and you see that it does actually do what it says and it is more or less cohesive, then you can say, well, yeah, this is probably taught by a Buddha. How beneficial is it to participate in society and still hope for spiritual progress? Well, it's not beneficial to participate in society, except in terms of duties, but uh, you, can still you can still hope for spiritual progress. You don't have to leave the world. Of course, dedicating your life to spiritual progress is, of course, much better. So no, you don't have to become a monk to gain spiritual merit. It's just easier because you don't have to do things that are unrelated to spirituality. You don't have to go to work. You don't have to deal with family. You don't have to uh, take care of a house and possessions and all those things. Other questions? Maybe try to do a Dhammapada tomorrow or someday soon. I think the weekend's probably better for... I assumed it was better for questions because people were not working, but not so many questions yet. Oh, here's one. What are the chances of enlightenment in the present day and age? Well, it's not a matter of chance, it's up to you. Are you able to become enlightened? That's all. I mean, yeah, you could probably do some, some statistic analysis if you could figure out who's enlightened. Not an easy task itself. And enlightenment isn't just about, you know, it isn't just a thing where you flick a switch, it just happens. Um, so you know, it's a gradual process. So you can start to practice. It doesn't really, the whole idea of whether you can become enlightened, it's about you know, putting one foot in front of the other and doing the work. I want to donate something to your establishment. Well, we do function through donations, so that's always appreciated. Not expected, but if it doesn't come, we'll just have to shut down. So the different things you can donate. I mean, I have to stay alive to eat, so I've gone back to going to restaurants that have been given money for me. So uh, you can go to my web blog, and there's a wish list that's about as direct as giving to me but then we have this organization and there's a support page for the organization that's on the main sirimangalo.org site 
If you go to sirimangalo.org, you'll find probably find what you need. Is there, is it right to say that you're in control of the decision making? If one is born as an animal, it can't make a decision like a human. Well, there's no you to be in control of the decision making. It's a hard subject to talk about because reality isn't quite the way we think in terms of there being a soul or a self not exactly deterministic either uh, reality is this it's this experience so in I think in conventional terms yes you you are responsible for each choice you make but it's hard to be specific about it hard to be exact animals can still make decisions they're just much less aware You know, most humans don't make decisions. Most humans just go according to habit. It's hard to find someone with mindfulness, but even animals can cultivate it. I think, actually I'm not sure, Abhidhamma might tell otherwise. It's a good question, because I know they talk about them being ahetuka or something. I don't know. How can we deal with judgmental thoughts? For example, noticing how attached someone else is. <laughs> well, start by the, by the disliking of it. Because you, know, you feel guilty, you feel bad about it. That's also a problem that prevents you from seeing it clearly. Remember, meditation is not about judging things. So even judging the bad things about seeing them and if you see them enough you'll you'll start to change so if you see yourself being judgmental again and again and you really start to see how how stressful that is and how unpleasant that is it'll you'll start to give it up how useless it is i guess most important and we shouldn't kick ourselves over the fact that we still have defilements we should learn about them, study them. Well, lots of questions now. What are the benefits of Dutanga ascetic practices? Um, well, they, they, they push you, they challenge you. It's like um, if you have someone who's a sport, who plays a sport, they might uh, do challenges, you know, or someone, let's say, uh, BMX cross-country biking or something, you know, they'll challenge themselves to, a, or when I was doing rock climbing, we would challenge ourselves to harder and harder climbs. Uh, so it's like a challenge. It, it pushes you. It's, um, it's like that, you know. So you don't have to do it. You can do ordinary biking but you want to do tricks on your bike and that kind of thing it's because it challenges you oh and then there's 
speaking of bicycling in the woods, bicycling in the woods, can it be a meditation, method of meditation? Um, nothing is meditation. Meditation is not what you're doing. Walking isn't meditation unless you're being meditative. So biking in the woods is not meditation unless you're being meditative. And the question is, what does it mean by being meditative? And of course, there are many different answers to that. In our tradition, we have a very specific definition of the word meditation. Not that we don't accept that other things are meditation, but when we talk about meditation, we mean something fairly specific. So if you're doing that when you're biking, then yes, you're meditating. If not, no. My real question, how does one put Dutanga practices in, in, into effect in today's society? The renunciation of the wilderness is not looked highly upon. Well, if we were all concerned about what was looked highly upon, we wouldn't ever get anything spiritual done. We would all be capitalists and materialists. Just put them into effect. Who cares what people think? You know, if you're worried about the censure of others, then maybe you've got, it's time to look for new friends, new associates. I mean, maybe that's being a little bit facetious, but or condescending, or I don't know what the word is. But, um, you know, get to a position where you can, but don't worry so much about the Tutangas. If, you, if you're, I mean, yes, they're mostly for people who are living in the forest. So, uh, you know, if you're worried about, I can't practice the Tutanga, they're not, they're not essential. But, I mean, who's going to stop you from eating one meal a day? Who's going to stop you from not wearing extra robes? Well, you know, society might. I only wear one set of robes, so that's a dutanga, isn't it? I don't ever change. But it gets problematic. You just have to remember to wash your robes often. <laughs> as soon as they start to smell. How does becoming a monk affect one's connection with family members? Well, it's pretty profound. It affects, as you can probably surmise, it affects your many aspects of your life fairly profoundly. So you're no longer a part of the family unit from your own perspective. Now your family might see it otherwise, so there are, there are um, allowances made for family members. There's, there's quite a few allowances made that make it more comfortable. But, you know, there's a change in the dynamic because you're no longer able to interact in the same way. So it takes some adjustment. But eventually it's, it seems to be a good thing. I mean, my family, I think, has, it's been a great thing for me to become a monk. It's enriched their lives just as many different things do. But I think they would say it enriches their lives to have another exotic piece of the puzzle, you know, to have me as part of their family. A Buddhist monk is, it's, it's not the best thing about their family, but it's one kind of like a jewel that they have. I think most of my family feels that way now, that it's something pretty neat, that they have a monk who is teaching meditation, who seems to be doing good things for people, helping the world, you know. Maybe makes them feel good to know that, that they're, I think, I don't think I don't suppose all my family members feel like that all the time, but in general, it uh, 
seem, I mean, it's always thought of as a great thing. Obviously, I think it is. Becoming a monk is great for your family in the long run. It just causes some tension, as change does, because people have a hard time dealing with change. I have animals I care for. Is there bad karma in not letting them be wild? Bad karma is not in such general things. Bad karma is in moments. So at the moments when you give rise to greed, anger, or delusion, there's bad karma. The moments you give rise to non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion, as in wisdom, love, and uh, renunciation, then there is good karma. The problem with animals is it's very easy to give rise to bad karma in regards to animals, either in terms of our dependence on them, or in terms of our anger and frustration when they don't do what we want, when we have to uh, have to uh, discipline them, that kind of thing. It's just like small children. I wouldn't ever want to have children because I, w I wouldn't ever want to have students who didn't ask me to be their teacher. Having children to me seems horrific. Having kids who you don't know, you know, you don't know whether they're going to listen to you or not. They have no reason to. Well, besides self-preservation, self but now it's maybe not so bad because children, kids do tend to listen to your parents if you're good parents, but uh, not certain. And kids can be terrible. Yeah. yeah um, as regards, so as regards to not letting them be wild, you, you have to see, does it necessitate states? And probably it does because animals are fairly unmanageable, except if you are unwholesome towards them, like hitting them, scolding them, you know, punishing them, that kind of thing. And then there's also the, uh, the uh, coddling them, which is certainly unwholesome when you coddle someone, coddle them, you know, make sure it always has pleasure so it doesn't ever get angry or frustrated or depressed. Diverting its attention with pleasure, not really wholesome. Meditation on the body. Would it be appropriate to look into the mirror when noting hair, hair, or nose, nose? Don't say nose, nose. But hair, hair, yes. Nose isn't one of them. Well, you start by looking at it. That's a great way to start. Look in the mirror to start. Um, but a good thing to do if you're really interested is read the Visuddhimagga. This is one part, one meditation where reading the Visuddhimagga would be a great help because there's some really in-depth uh, descriptions of the 32 parts of the body that go beyond what anyone, that I, what I would have ever thought of to describe these things. It's so very clear, you know, excruciatingly clear and precise about the description of these things. That really helps you keep them in mind. So this is a manual that's been designed to facilitate this. And of course, a mirror can help, but the mirror is, I still say, would it be inferior to the Visuddhimagga descriptions. But the idea is eventually then you don't need the mirror. You, you wouldn't need it. You would go and close your eyes. We began looking into the forest tradition Concerned that this desire is based on attachment for natural environment. So create a version for people. 
I already have an issue with feeling aversion towards groups of people, so perhaps they'd be compounding this. See, the thing about the Thai forest tradition is that that's just their name for it. And it's somewhat objectionable because there are lots of forest monks in Thailand that have nothing to do with that group. They just got famous. And rightly so, you know, they are a good group of monks. But it's somewhat objectionable that they should call themselves the forest tradition. I've lived in the forest, you know. My teacher spent a lot of time in the forest. It, you have to understand where that word came from. It was, um, there was one monk who, Ajahn Man, and, you know, his sort of other monks who were strict about staying in the forest. And so they started calling them Wat Pa, Wat Pa. And their, their, their monasteries would be called Wat Pa this, Wat Pa that. Pa means forest. And because their monasteries all took on the name Wat Pa, Wat Pa, they called it Sai Wat Pa. And they, today they still call it Sai Wat Pa, but it's just a short form of this. Uh, the, the Sai means, means the tradition or lineage, but Wat Pa means, means the forest monastery, but it was referring to specific forest monasteries, a specific group of forest monasteries. And uh, so it's come to be a little bit deceptive in that sense. So if you're asking, you're actually asking two questions, or you have to separate those that question out because uh, it has nothing to do with the Thai forest tradition. That's true. That your your question doesn't exactly, but let's just focus on the the idea of living in the forest. Does living in the forest create aversion, potentially? Um, but I think the the benefits of living in the forest far outweigh that, because any aversion that you have towards something can be worked out through introspection. Now, living in the forest helps with introspection. So in the beginning, it might be just uh, an indulgence by because of attachment to, the na to nature. But over the long term, uh, living, the, the benefits will come and they'll, they'll wash away all that. You know, through living in the forest long term, you, you gain a lot. You gain a lot of strength of mind and and wisdom, and that wisdom is very applicable in society among groups of people. I wouldn't say that a person who's lived in the forest for a long time is averse to. Uh, you know, they, they may be disinclined, but they'll be they'll be much less likely to give rise to aversion because they've worked it. They've been able to work it out. I mean, not just by living in the forest, but by doing the things that are meant to be done in the forest. Practice of insight meditation, which is much better done in the forest, I would say. Not necessary to be in the forest, but there are benefits. All right, I think that's enough for tonight. Lots of questions. Oh, here's one. Right, that's not a question. Okay, I'm going to cut it off there. Thank you all for coming tonight. And see you all tomorrow.